0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live.
1: I'm Sarah Ellison, a reporter here at The Post. Our program today is called Free to State, and we're going to be talking about um, the First Amendment and freedom of speech. We are very lucky to have with us today Stephen Hayes, and Jonah Goldberg. They are the co-founders of The Dispatch. Well, warm welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.
1: Um, Jonah, I want to start with you. You have called yourself close to a First Amendment absolutist, but not a free speech absolutist. Can you explain to us the difference?
2: Sure. I'm trying to remember the last time I said that. Um, Look, I'm... I'm someone who thinks that um, that the First Amendment's protections are primarily intended and designed for poli- expressly political speech. And um, I think that one of the problems we've gotten into as a culture is that we've forgotten that. And the arguments for defending um, outlandish speech, uh, obscene speech, pornography, Historically, the reason the argument for defending those sorts of things is to say, well, as long as we're, we're protecting these things way out on the periphery, we'll never get regulation of our core speech rights, which have to do with politics, questioning and go- criticizing the government, criticizing power and whatnot. And I think that one of the problems starting in the 1960s we've had is we flipped that around. And we think the most important part of the First Amendment is to protect boutique often uh, you know, deliberately provocative and obscene speech like pornography, um, while we think it's perfectly fine to regulate core essential to democracy political speech through things like campaign finance reform and other things. Don't forget, you know, the, the Obama uh, Justice Department argued before the Supreme Court that, you could actually, that the government could actually ban books within a certain time period before an election. That's crazy to me. And so I'm very passionate about protecting political speech rights, but if some town wants to have community standards about what constitutes obscenity or if a college campus has a certain set of speech codes about decency, I'm not saying that they should necessarily flout the First Amendment, but I think that they can have a certain amount of freedom to um, protect community standards as long as they don't touch on these core political speech rights.
1: I want to get to um, the protests that we've seen, whether it is over vaccines, Black Lives Matter, obviously January sixth there's a different kind of um, gathering and an insurrection. What do people when we're talking about those sorts of events and people start to talk about the First Amendment, what do they get right, and what do they get wrong? Um, if you still
2: going to me i I, yes, I think they. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the First Amendment protects a lot of things other than just simply speech. It's freedom of assembly. It's freedom of worship. I think that um, uh, we have tended to define down what the First Amendment means to be essentially about, again, expression. We also tended to define the First Amendment as basically some right that adheres to journalists more than it does to everybody else but the simple fact is, is that from the text, the meaning, the history of it, um, there is no professional carve out for journalists. We all have the right to commit journalism. We have all the same rights to free speech. That doesn't mean as a prudential matter that journalists can't have uh, a certain amount of deference you know, in terms of the common law, in terms of you know how judges try to like not get in the way of a free press. Um, but um, I-, I think that we have, confused a lot of the, or we've conflated a lot of the, um, the rights in the First Amendment and, and sort of staggered them with different emphasis. I, I am just as passionate about the right to freedom of worship as I am about the right to freedom of press as I am about the right of freedom of assembly. And I, you don't get the sense that those all get the same um, respect and, and, and deference in, in the popular culture and in the media in general.
1: Stephen, I want to come to you. Um, Recently, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, was banned from Twitter for her comments about um, COVID misinformation. Obviously, former President Donald Trump was banned from a variety of social media platforms. I want to ask you were those, in your view, were those necessary actions or is that a step towards censorship?
3: Well, I mean, I don't think there's any question that it is a step towards censorship. I mean, that is what they're doing. In effect, they're saying we, we are we are not going to permit these views on our platforms. But deplatforming is something very different when you're talking about private companies. Um, Twitter has every right to to deplatform Donald Trump or Marjorie Taylor Greene or whomever. Facebook has a right to to monitor what's being uh, the, the conversations that are being had on on its platform, Meta. Um, and I, th- I think that's, uh, to me, that's very clear. That's, that's part of this, you know, and all of the murkiness around these issues these days and the reason that we're having this conversation. That part at least is clear. What I think is more difficult is, the, is sort of the, the obligations and, and the wisdom or the prudence of these companies in taking those steps. I mean, one of the reasons that we have seen growing calls for censorship, sort of a growing movement, Away from free speech, in particular on the right, is this sense that there are two sets of rules. Um, Facebook and Twitter um, going after prominent conservatives, deplatforming them, shutting down individual posts. There was a controversy this week where where Facebook um, effectively shut down a children's book, conservative children's book publisher, um, later calling it an error. And I, for a lot of conservatives, not unreasonably, they see this these kinds of mistakes uh, or errors in all heading in the same direction or usually heading in the same direction. And the response from conservatives, too many conservatives in my view, has been to say, okay, we need to take away these, uh, these protections for these tech companies under Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. I think it's the wrong answer. Um, but it, there's a reason that you're hearing it more and more from conservatives. I would say there is sort of a parallel move. I mean, they're not the same, and I don't want to to, uh, to directly compare them. But you've seen, I think, a, a fraying of the free speech coalition on the left as well. If you look at the kinds of things that have been coming out of the ACLU, for instance, um, the ACLU seems today to be as devoted to kind of promoting wokeism as it does to promoting the kinds of core civil liberties like free speech that the ACLU had been for decades known to promote. And I think that's the concern is you have these these two groups on one on the right, one on the left, both making similar arguments in in a for opposite outcomes in in some ways, um, but that could lead to the to the same kinds
2: of conclusions. And I think that would be less speech.
1: So I feel like you yeah, might have answered that.
2: I'm yeah. sorry. No, go ahead. I have COVID brains, so maybe I misunderstood the question, you asked me before. But um, you know, th- this is one of the great concerns that I've got, is that we are now getting essentially a very strange consensus between the right and the left that both believe that the government should step in to do more content moderation of large internet platforms they want very different kinds of moderation, um, but they both think that the, the state has the power, the authority and the ability to create bureaucracies that can run the content uh, flow on places like Facebook and Twitter better than these private companies have, which is I think <clears throat> insane and really scary on the merits. And the weirdest part about it is that there's, it's not just a bipartisan consensus, Facebook and a lot of these platforms want it too. Every morning I watch ads on Morning Joe and, and MSNBC from Facebook begging the federal government to regulate it because they understand that if they can get the government to get in and create regulations for social media platforms, it will entrench them as the largest incumbent and it serve as a barrier to entry for smaller media platforms um, uh, to be able to, get, to become big. And uh, whenever you see this kind of sweeping corporate, bipartisan consensus starting to emerge, that's when you should get nervous because it means there's a certain amount of groupthink going on. Particularly when it's, you should be nervous when it's focusing around core free speech and liberty issues.
1: Well, I mean, for either one of you, do you think the platforms should be held legally responsible for? Harm, quote-unquote harmful content that they might amplify or do you or, or what about the news networks i mean do you think that there should be additional um legal liability well let's talk about the platforms first either one of you
3: Steve, you want to go i mean no i don't jonah there's a reason i didn't go to law <laughs> school and it's because i would have to answer <laughs> questions like this um Look, I, I honestly, I don't I don't know. I don't want to dodge the question, but let me just announce that I'm dodging the question um, in order to be more honest about it. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with um, those kinds of um, att- attaching those kinds of legal consequences to um, journalistic entities um, and and, you know. I suppose the devil would be in the details, I think my colleague David French, who is actually a, a lawyer, um, would argue that the devil is in the details there, but um, you know I, I guess my basic view is more speech is good speech, and uh, that would be sort of a if, if you enhance the um, legal um, vulnerabilities of these companies, whether tech companies or journalism companies, you uh, create Disincentive—you create disincentives for them to allow free speech—and um, and I think that's problematic for our for our overall national discussion.
1: And Jonah, what about Congress's role?
2: Um, I have very little faith in Congress. Um, I, you know, normal a normal obsession of mine um, these days is, um, or I should say, a particular obsession of mine. Uh, is that Congress is completely inadequate to the tasks it's supposed to cha- it's supposed to take on. It has um, lost the ability um, to play the role that the founding fathers imagined for it. It is the first branch of government. It is supposed to be where politics happens, and instead it's become this ridiculous theater for um, partisan performative nonsense. Um, it's even forgetting how to just do basic legislation. So it makes me very nervous the idea that they're going to come up with uh, finely tuned rules and regulations that can make this stuff work. I mean, to answer the question that Steve tried to dodge, um, part of the problem is is that people, I mean, the, 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 the myth-making around Section 230 is such that people don't seem to understand that if you got rid of Section 230, it would Get rid of comment sections it would destroy places like I don't know Yelp because you couldn't you would you would basically be saying that the platform hosting a comment is responsible for the content of all of those comments so the first thing you'd have to do is just get rid of those kinds of comments and I think that that's that is not something that a lot of people actually want and creating some sort of bureaucracy to police that sort of thing seems to me to be Simply, first of all, a grotesque violation of conservative principles, but also just an invitation for endless fights about the government picking winners and losers in various, you know, debates and arguments in in on the internet, and that that seems like making all of our problems worse.
1: So let me try to pin both of you down. Then, if if Congress doesn't have a role, and we don't think that. Um, that there's really good legislation that could be passed is there any it, what is the answer for um speech on the platforms is there any remedy that you would feel comfortable with other than just additional speech and allowing um good speech to drown out bad speech and i, I guess i'll go to jonah first now yeah
2: i mean i, I... I'm not saying the Congress doesn't have a role. I'm saying it's inadequate to the task to live up to the role that it has, um, and I think it'll make things worse. That said, I'm very much interested in, in having uh, you know legislatures look at some of these algorithms. That you know, part of my beef about almost all social media is it tries to monetize dopamine hits by making people angry um, rather than informed, and it is completely corrupted. I shouldn't say completely. It is is fueled a lot of corruption of journalism on the right and on the left that aims at uh, at, at basically just riling people up um, with you know bad information, exaggerated yeah. information, misinformation. Um, and if there's a way to look at some of those kinds of algorithms and business models, particularly things like on TikTok and Instagram, I'm all in favor of it. But my hunch is, is that the revelations would have a better effect. Effect than the legislation because the social stigma that comes with finding out that people are like say Facebook is hurting teenage girls has driven more changes than um, you know the the threat of legislation would if that makes any sense. Sure. Yeah, Um, I guess I'm I'm I'm, I'm probably even more skeptical than Jonah
3: is that that Congress has a role here. I mean, it's hard for me to see what Congress could do in legislation that would both uh, further these political debates and um, keep the government from ultimately being the ultimate content arbiter. And that's a bad role. I mean, it's conservatives, conservatives used to be furious even at the suggestion that government have a role in content moder- moderation, uh, particularly of private companies. I remember listening to Rush Limbaugh back in the days in the 1990s and Rush Limbaugh would go on and on about the Fairness Doctrine and the, the left promoting the Fairness Doctrine This would cripple talk radio and cripple Rush Limbaugh. And and now you have, as Jonah mentioned earlier, folks on on the right, this this post-liberal right, in effect saying, yeah, government should be involved in all of that and we want the power. Then you just have these competing uh, interests on the left and the right, in effect saying, we have the power to shut down these debates, whether you're talking about regulating Tech companies, whether you're talking about imposing some kind of fairness doctrine, it's all very impractical. And I think the as, as messy and ugly as things are right now, it's easy to see them getting worse with the hand of government.
1: Um, I want to turn for a moment. We don't have much more time, but you both just left Fox News uh, recently over objections to Tucker Carlson's January 6th. Um, documentary. Do you feel that Fox News contributed to the violence that erupted on January 6th, one year ago? Stephen, I'll start with you.
3: Look, there were were people making arguments on Fox News in the run-up to January 6th, in the post-election period, that I think were deeply irresponsible and created the impression among Fox News viewers that the president had rightfully won an election that he lost. Uh, it wasn't Fox News alone, to be sure. Um, this was prominent on Talk Radio. You had a, a, any of a number of digital native media companies on the right, as Jonah suggested earlier, in effect trying to monetize this outrage. And what, what happened was as the as the president and his advisors lost court case after court case, as their conspiracy theories were disproven and debunked in really an embarrassing sort of way, the hardest of hardcore Trump supporters, including people on Fox News, including people like Sean Hannity, sort of doubled and tripled down. And I think that gave people the impression that Trump had won an election he had lost and it contributed to the environment on January 6th, no question about it.
2: Jonah? Yeah, look, I, mean, I agree with Steve. Steve and I have had these conversations a lot. Um, I should say that uh, the the Tucker Carlson stuff was the final straw for for me. It wasn't the it, you know it wasn't. But for that, you know, I would have. I, I, things have been going south for me and my relate my my views on Fox News for quite a while. That that said, I don't think it was. It's it's Fox News people paint sometimes with too broad a brush, because. Um, While well, I think Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and the other Fox primetime types and the opinion side people um, have a lot to answer for in the climate that they helped foster, with their, which they're still fostering, um, that I think is irresponsible and untrue. Um, it's worth pointing out that that on the news side, you know, uh, our former colleague and friend, you know, Brett Baer, uh, was reporting the truth and reporting the facts and saying that the election, you know, and reporting that the election was not stolen, that there was no basis to these claims about massive fraud. Um, the problem is is that the the loudest voices, the highest rated voices, the most influential voices on Fox are all on the opinion side, and um, it used to be understood that opinion was supposed to be primarily informed by fact, and instead opinion at a lot of places, but I think it's particularly bad at, you know, in, in Fox world these days. Um, the the business model at a lot of places now is to tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And if you have an opinion that differs from the president of the United States fraudulent narrative, um, people don't want to hear it. It's not going to get aired, certainly not in prime time. Um, and so you, you get this echo chamber effect. And I think that is deeply pernicious, it's not the, it, but when we talk about Fox News, we need to be clear that part of it is is actually just a sort of a failure of policy rather than the actual policy where they let the opinion people ride um, high in the saddle without much guidance or supervision or control. And the news people have to clean, try to clean up the mess. And it's a I think it's just a deeply dysfunctional and tragic situation over there.
1: Um, It pains me to say that we have run out of time. I have so many questions for you both, um, but thank you very much for the time you've given us this morning. Jonah Goldberg, Stephen Hayes, thank you for joining us. I'm gonna ask the audience to stick with me. We'll be back in a few minutes um, with Paul Clement and Nadine Sprothen.
4: The following segment
0: was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom
4: was not involved in the production of this content. Good afternoon and thanks for joining Free to State. I'm Yvette Alexander, Director of Learning and Impact at the Knight Foundation. As a foundation, we believe our free speech and expression rights underpin Knight's mission to foster informed and engaged communities for a healthy democracy. And this morning, on the one year anniversary of the insurrection, we released the results of a new survey of 4,000 Americans by our partners at Ipsos, which reveals exactly where we agree and disagree on issues of free speech and the First Amendment in a post-2020 society. Here with me today to discuss those findings is one of our advisors on the study, Yana Krupnikov, Professor of Political Science at Stony Brook University. She's a political psychologist and author of two books, Independent Politics and The Other Divide, Polarization and Disengagement in American Politics, coming in March 2022. Yana, a large majority of Americans agreed that the events of January 6 were not a legitimate expression of First Amendment rights, whereas the racial justice protests of 2020 were. But we also see pretty strong agreement on the importance of speech to our democracy, a recognition of various ways it produces value for our society, and a desire to see racist speech prohibited in a variety of institutional settings. Did the common ground we have as Americans surprise you at all?
0: I think that there is something comforting in the common ground that the uh, survey and the report finds. Um, In particular, it is comforting that even in a particular divisive time, people still agree on these broad, sometimes abstract principles of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. What I think makes this survey especially important, however, is the fact that it pushes these questions forward rather than just asking about principles Um, it asks people what they might do in specific situations. And so there's something I think surprising in the idea that while Americans agree on the fundamental values and principles, they continue to to disagree when we actually give them very specific situations in which they have to apply those principles. So it's simultaneously a surprising um, aspect, but also a comforting one in the agreement on the fundamentals.
4: Yes, and we also saw some disagreement along party lines as to what constitutes legitimate speech. For example, when it comes to posting false information about COVID online, and we disagree on what groups in the U.S. have an easier time exercising their speech rights. The data showed that party affiliation was driving most of that divide, but that independent Americans were a bit all over the place in terms of their views. Um, could, your work deals in political psychology, so how do you see these views on free speech and expression being shaped and molded over time? There's a tendency
0: in American politics to focus on the two parties, and especially on the extremes within those two parties. But in the survey, um, a sizable proportion of people uh, either identify as independent or say they're something else, they're not giving us a party. And so how those people respond to questions, these independents, these something else, uh, is also extraordinarily important. So the fact that they are all over the place Uh, allows us to see how people who don't necessarily have a partisan connection uh, feel about these different questions. And so what we see is that they are sometimes less beholden to strong cues from party elites. Um, Sometimes they don't necessarily even want to answer the question in large part because they really haven't thought about it. But looking at this particular group allows us to see how people experience politics Without necessarily following um, kind of extreme and strong partisan cues. So their responses being all over the place gives us an indication of what happens when people aren't necessarily responding to heavily politicized information.
4: And speaking of heavily politicized information, we did have some pretty high-profile events in 2020 that related to speech and expression, the pandemic, the racial justice protests, the insurrection. And obviously, media coverage of those events differed. And you found in your research, it was again borne out in the survey data, that there's a relationship between media consumption and having more extreme partisan views. Can you say more about that? Returning to this idea of partisan divides and divisions
0: and the difference between partisans and independents, One of the things that uh, is especially important is how much attention people are paying to politics and to political news. Uh, Politics is often not something that people experience firsthand. It's something that they hear about uh, when they watch the news. It's something that they see on social media from others. And so the extent to which people are paying attention, the extent to which people are consuming media is certainly going to affect how they perceive political events, and actually how they fit those uh, political events into a freedom of speech perspective. So some of the disconnect we see between the values people apply when thinking about freedom of expression and their opinions on these really important freedom of expression events like protests, for example, are going to heavily depend on what information they're receiving from the media and Uh, how much attention they're paying to this information. So somebody who is, let's say, heavily partisan and heavily invested in following the news is going to be much more likely to take an extreme partisan position than somebody who is, let's say, a very casual news observer, somebody who isn't paying as much attention. So we are going to see bigger
4: divides amongst people who are paying more attention to the news. And, you know, in closing, what should we take away from this survey in terms of where Americans are on these issues and how it might inform educators, policymakers or even tech companies?
0: Um, I think one thing to take away from it is that public opinion is complicated. Um, It is not a simple translation of, let's just ask people what they think and do the following. Um, The survey suggests a tremendous amount of nuance. People feel differently about values than they do about actual events. People feel differently uh, depending on their life experiences, depending on how much they follow the news. So I think the takeaway from the survey is that Addressing questions of freedom of expression is not a simple public opinion question, uh, rather it is something that requires a return to the actual fundamental values that we apply to freedom of expression ideas, uh, and I think this survey really bears
4: the, the complicated nuance of this particular issue out. Yes, certainly not one size fits all. Um, Well, that's all we have time for today, but we do invite you to visit KF.org to see the findings of the report and learn more about where Americans stand on free expression in a post-2020 world.
0: And now, back
1: to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you are just joining us, I'm Sarah Ellison, a reporter here at The Post. Joining me now is Paul Clement, a former U.S. Solicitor General and current partner at Kirkland and Ellis in Washington, D.C., and also with us is Nadine Strossen, former president of the ACLU and a New York law school professor, Emerita. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much, Sarah. Great to be here. Paul, um, I want to start with you. Do Americans today truly understand what the First Amendment does and does not protect?
5: Well, it's hard to say. I think, you know, people still, I think, you know, talk about the First Amendment, but sometimes they're talking about First Amendment values, and other times they're talking about the First Amendment itself. I mean, I think one of the most foundational things to know about the First Amendment is that it's only a restriction on government action. So when people talk about social media platforms uh, not respecting First Amendment rights, You know, they're really being a little bit inaccurate there because uh, private actors do not violate the First Amendment if they don't allow a wide spectrum of speech. Uh, But the government is the entity that the First Amendment principally is concerned with and principally protects against the government uh, abridging speech. So I think that's one foundational thing people should understand in this area.
1: Sure. Um Nadine, I want to come to you. We had a lot of audience members writing in to ask us the question, should the government seek to reinterpret or even rewrite the First Amendment for the 21st century? How would you respond to that
6: question? The First Amendment really has stood the test of time, Sarah. It is written in broad language, I would contend. The framers who wrote other provisions in the Constitution very specifically and narrowly, we can infer deliberately chose open textured language for the grand freedoms, the fundamental freedoms in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, to use another uh, First Amendment provision that's very much in the news, especially today. Now, those open textured terms have been subject to differing interpretations over time. And it wasn't until the second half of the 20th century that the Supreme Court came to very, strongly and consistently protect free speech, including for controversial speech. It's no coincidence that the strong protection of the the strong interpretation of those terms in the First Amendment really gained traction during the civil rights movement, because throughout our history, civil rights protesters, women suffragists, uh, labor organizers, people who were challenging government policies, seeking reform in the name of social justice and human rights, were the ones who were censored. And so when the Supreme Court began finally to really strongly enforce, First Amendment uh, broad guarantees, the main beneficiaries have been those who have been challenging the status quo, and that continues to be true to this day.
1: Paul, I want to sort of put the same question to you, but add, um, how have our interpretations of free speech changed or evolved over time, and particularly now in this era that we see as one of, you know, very heightened polarization?
5: Yeah I would certainly join Nadine in saying that you know that we should keep the first amendment that we have I do think that the language was written purposely broadly and I think the Supreme Court has interpreted it in a way that keeps it up to date with changes in technology I mean you know it's almost cartoonish to suggest that the that the first amendment would protect printing presses but not uh, online speech and, and and the like and and I think we now have a situation where from a, from the perspective of the courts, there's still a pretty broad agreement among conservative jurists and liberal jurists about the importance of the First Amendment, even in a digital age, even in an age of polarization and divisiveness. So I think where I'm sort of seeing the consensus break down is less with the way that courts are applying the First Amendment and more in the way that other people are sort of perceiving the First Amendment and First Amendment values. You know, when as as Nadine suggests, you know, the traditional view kind of when I was going to law school was that the First Amendment was principally a protection for uh, minority rights. It's a kind of anti-majoritarian provision. And so there was a strong commitment to free speech principles on the left. And there was kind of a begrudging sort of acknowledgement of them on the right. And I think over the course of my legal career, I've sort of seen that shift a little bit where, if anything, there's a stronger commitment to First Amendment values on the right than the left. But certainly on both extremes, I think people are beginning to question the value of the First Amendment in ways that you know, I certainly wouldn't have seen coming uh, 20 years ago.
6: Yeah, can I add something to that, Sarah, because I've been defending unpopular, controversial speech for my entire adult lifetime. By definition, it's not going to be subject to censorship unless it's unpopular. And I really agree with a statement that, among others, uh, the journalist Nat Hentoff said, which is most people tend to believe in freedom of speech for me, but not for thee. They want to make an exception to the broad language in the First Amendment for whatever speech they consider the most controversial, the most dangerous, the most threatening. Uh, So in today, actually, we get a lot of consensus about uh, disinformation is so dangerous and it should be suppressed. Of course, there's enormous disagreement about what is disinformation and what is accurate information. Uh, To underscore a point that Paul made, which I think is really so telling, on the United States Supreme Court, which is deeply divided, on so many issues. Uh, The court has been pretty much unanimous or with a very strong consensus across the whole broad ideological spectrum about consistently protecting freedom of speech for even the most controversial speech, including hate speech. And in contrast, the public is deeply divided. I submit that the difference between the court's agreement on fundamental First Amendment principles and the public's division is that the court understands the legal principles. I think there is so much misunderstanding and ignorance about what the First Amendment does and does not protect that accounts for a large part of the hostility or suspicion toward the first amendment on the part of the general public. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right about that. We, I, you
1: you brought up hate speech and I want to go to an audience question that we have actually, um, this is from Cindy who's watching from Norway. Um, and she said, is all hate speech considered free speech? Are there any legal limitation um, to what is allowed? And I, I will allow either one of you to, um, respond to that, but I I think, Nadine, you you did bring
6: up the the point. And I wrote an entire book on the subject. It's a a great question, and it shows an understanding that is not revealed by the too many public officials, as well as members of the public, who say hate speech is not free speech, or conversely, uh, too many libertarians say hate speech is free speech. But the truth is, some is protected and some is not protected. The law is very sensible. Um, One basic uh, premise of our law is that government may never suppress speech solely because of disapproval of the content, the idea, uh, the viewpoint. So the mere fact that somebody is saying something hateful is never enough of a justification to suppress it. However, if we move beyond the content, the viewpoint of the message, and we look at it in its overall context, the Supreme Court has supported what is often called the emergency principle. If in particular facts and circumstances, speech with any message, including a hateful message, directly causes or threatens certain specific, imminent serious harm, then it can and should be suppressed. So to use an example that's very current today, um, if speech intentionally incites imminent violent or lawless conduct that is likely to happen imminently, then that speech, may be punished so if a hateful message satisfies the strict emergency standard for punishable incitement it can be punished likewise if a hateful message satisfies the standard for a true threat so we have to look at the details the overall context
5: Paul, and, you and
1: know, can, can,
5: yeah uh, Sarah, the thing i would add is that you know as and nadine is absolutely right but you can hear just the way she formulates the doctrine here, that it does sort of err on the side of protecting the speech. So, you know, the threat really has to be imminent. And, you know, you know fighting words have to be truly fighting words. So it, it, in a sense, the First Amendment doesn't say that all hate speech is protected all of the time in every context. But it's still, by adopting a very demanding test, does protect uh, a fair degree of hate speech. And I think that reflects the idea that, you know, even if everybody could agree that they'd like more restrictions on hate speech, they wouldn't necessarily agree on what constitutes hate speech. And those create the kind of dynamics that the First Amendment addresses because people don't agree on those questions. Um, the last thing we want is the government making all the calls on where the line is. And so, you know, going, you know, back at, you know, roughly 100 years to, as Nadine says, when the First Amendment really got seriously applied by the Supreme Court, I think these tests do err on the side of allowing more speech, not less speech.
1: So, Paul, what do you think are the greatest threats to freedom of expression today?
5: So, honestly, I think the greatest threat is this kind of weakening public consensus about free speech values. Because it's all well and good for the Supreme Court to be unanimous or nearly unanimous in protecting free speech. And I think the first, the the justices recognize that because the First Amendment is an anti-majoritarian provision, you know, they, they won't expect their First Amendment decisions to all be popular if you, you know, just to invoke one of them, if you're protecting the right to somebody to engage in really offensive speech at the funeral of a military member, I mean, that's not going to be a popular decision to say that that speech can go forward. The Supreme Court gets that. And I think the Supreme Court is willing to apply the First Amendment to protect free speech, even where it's not popular. But in the long run, we're not going to have the be able to be fully committed to First Amendment values unless there's a societal consensus that backs it up and recognizes that, you know, not just the First Amendment text is important, but the values that underlie it continue to be important in our society and that the solution to most issues is not government regulation of speech, but more speech.
1: Well, that brings me to or brings us to um, social media platforms in the private sector, which is where a lot of this conversation is happening um, today. And Paul, I'm wondering if you think that social media companies should be held legally responsible for harmful content um, that they, or, you know, harmful content that they help amplify, or what is largely viewed as harmful content. I'd be curious to your response to that.
5: So I would say two things. I mean, first, as I, as I already indicated, I think when you're thinking about social media platforms, um, you know, it's, it's wrong to think about that as, as when they um, engage in content moderation or take certain people um, and, uh, you know, take them off their services, their, their services and the like. I think it's wrong to think of that as a direct sort of First Amendment violation because they're not state actors, although it certainly does implicate broader free speech values. And then I guess the second thing I would say here is, you know, I would be careful what you wish for. At the end of the day, there's gonna be some first amendment limits on what the government can do in regulating the social media companies. But even in the realm of where there is perhaps you know, a government ability to relax certain immunities and the, and the rest, I mean, you do have to be careful what you wish for here, because this seems like another universe where the traditional First Amendment remedy of more speech, not less speech, um, is probably the better answer in the long run from a First Amendment standpoint.
1: Nadine, I'm curious um, if you would concur
6: with that or what you would say. I too, And I'm kind of smiling because I've looked recently at Paul's amazingly long and distinguished record of advocacy before the Supreme Court. Paul, I think we were never on the same side on any issue. And so it's really remarkable that we are so much in agreement on this particular issue. I think that that's noteworthy uh, in terms of government regulation. When the internet first hit the public and political and media radar screen in the early 1990s, the first thing Congress did was to pass a law to try to rein it in. And that's the traditional response to every new medium throughout history. Those of us who celebrate human rights and free speech get very excited. But those who are afraid about too much free speech, you know, reaching too many people, um, uh, get nervous. And I'm very proud that in the Supreme Court's landmark decision, the first one about freedom of speech, or for that matter, any freedom online, uh, it upheld unanimously the ACLU position against government restriction in a case called uh, Reno versus American Civil Liberties Union. I continue to believe that the government can only do more harm than good to intervene in trying to decide what speech is too harmful to take away from private sector entities, the same right that you are exercising, Sarah, through the Washington Post, that uh, your prior guests who are exercising through the, the dispatch to decide what views to air, what views not to air, uh, what speakers to air, what speakers not to air. I think it's especially dangerous that, um, we, that we have to remember that there are incentives now, for the social media platforms to allow third-party voices, people who never would have have had access to the kind of outlets that they can have through social media. We have a disposition psychologically, it seems, to always look at the negative. And I think we take for granted the enormous, unprecedented positive appealing to my liberal friends and colleagues. I mean, just think of the social justice movements that could never have gotten traction were it not for social media, uh, free of government interference. The Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, a whole host of political candidates who are relatively unknown, unfunded, uh, minority candidates in unprecedented numbers, female candidates in unprecedented numbers. We cannot lose sight of the enormous, positive potential of social media. And we should use the traditional remedies of more speech, uh, more education, more information to counter the negative speech on this medium as on all others. Um, We don't have a lot of time
1: left, but I want to ask you about a specific um, instance, Paul, and it's relevant for January 6th. Um, What about something as specific as Donald Trump's Twitter feed when he was president. Um, And he was talking about how the results of the election were not valid, um, and he continued to talk about that. What's the right remedy for that specific instance?
6: Well,
5: I, I guess I would, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but I'd go back to the fundamental principle that, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whoever you want to talk about, I mean, they're not they're not the government. And, you know, if there was some government agency and, you know, they shut down the president or the president's challenger or, you know, the incumbent or the challenger in some election in the wake of some election, if the government itself did it, I think that would be you know, profoundly troubling. And we would want to very much err on the side, even if there was a broad consensus. That what the you know the person that was being whose speech was being suppressed was you know incorrect um, and even wildly incorrect. I think if it were the government, we would clearly want to err on the side of not allowing the suppression of speech. But when it comes to private actors, I think we have to recognize that they do have um, just a different calculus and a different freedom, um, and if they want to decide that that's not speech that they want to be associated with, that they want to carry, um, you know, I, I think that's, they're they're entitled to that view. And that view may be controversial. That view may cause some people to want to cancel their accounts with that provider. And it may drive some people to alternative providers. Um, and none of that strikes me as particularly problematic. And none of that, you know, and, and all of that strikes me as actually Quite consistent with first amendment principles and first amendment values and i think it gets back to this fundamental difference that you know if a private entity doesn't want to carry speech that's its right and if the government wants to suppress suppress speech that's a serious first amendment problem
1: um i'm so sorry to say that we are in fact out of time. I have many more questions for you both, and I know you have a lot more to offer on this topic, but I have to thank you, and um, I'll let you go this morning. Thank you for joining
0: us. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.